2: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and if you come here often and you like what you hear, then pop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, because it really helps us get out there to everyone and anyone who loves history. Now, we're talking about my favourite topic, I guess, and this is drones and drone warfare. But it's an aspect of that history that I really didn't know too much about. Because when you think of the Vietnam War, you certainly don't think of drones. Instead, you think of that disastrous conflict which conjures up a history of conscription, protests, high death tolls on both sides, and a brutal conflict which rolled on through the 60s and 70s. But David Axe, a journalist, author and filmmaker, has added a whole new layer to that history with his new book, Drone War Vietnam. Now, how's that for a title? In it, and in this podcast, he explains how drone aircraft spotted targets for crude US bombers, jammed North Vietnamese radar... And scattered propaganda leaflets among many other missions. In this podcast, he explains how drone aircraft spotted targets for piloted US bombers, they jammed North Vietnamese radar and scattered propaganda leaflets among many other missions. In fact, they were used in their thousands, laying the way for the drone dominant wars we see today. So here is David Axe on Drone War Vietnam. Hi, David. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. How's your summer been? Uh, Viral. <laughs> How's your summer been? <laughs> viral in the sense of global pandemic or viral in the sense of your book is going wild? No, I do live on the same planet you do. So uh, <laughs> no, it's been pretty pandemic-y. And over in the US, I fear that it's getting worse again with a, another wave coming through. Whereabouts in the US are you?
1: I live in South Carolina, which is currently one of the worst affected places in the world for COVID right now.
2: Oh, David, I'm sorry to hear that and our thoughts go out to you. I hope you're able to get over to Europe soon enough so that we can hear you talk about your new book and your fascinating research. Thanks. Now, I talk a lot about drones from the First World War through to future war. Drones, in some form or another, have made their way to the top of the world's lists of the most wanted weapons by nation-states. And much of this, especially in the case of the US, is perhaps about trying to reduce the risk to human life, on one side at least, by replacing soldiers with robots, or at least that's what we're told – But there is one war, within the 20th century at least, that I've really only had and read scant reports about when it comes to the use of drones. And this is Vietnam. It's not a conflict you think about when you think about drones, so I'm really keen to learn more. So let's start with some basics. First of all, what sort of drones are we talking about here when we're talking about drone use in the Vietnam War? Drones were fairly common in the vietnam era there were several types
1: the type that i focused on i would argue was the most important that had the most immediate and deepest impact on the air war over vietnam the uh, ryan aeronautical model 147 lightning bug
2: okay so tell us a little about the ryan aeronautical lightning bug this isn't an armed system, is it? This is, We're talking about more of an unarmed surveillance system. Is that right? The Lightning Bug was unarmed for the duration of the Vietnam War. As the war
1: was ending, the Air Force began experimenting with arming the drone. For the purposes of the Vietnam Air War, the Model 147 performed reconnaissance missions, leaflet dropping propaganda missions decoy missions, and electronic intelligence, among other unarmed missions. The Model 147 is an adaptation of a target drone, a very simple jet-powered subsonic, semi-autonomous radio-controlled plane, basically, that the U.S. military had been using prior to Vietnam for many years for target practice. It was actually earlier in the Cold War that the Air Force realized it had a need for an unmanned reconnaissance system. In 1960, the Soviet Union shot down a manned U-2 spy plane operated by the CIA. The pilot, Gary Powers, was captured, spent a couple years as a guest of the Soviet Union, and it was a major diplomatic crisis. That wasn't the only U-2 spy plane that... ...landed itself in diplomatic trouble during the early 1960s. Another U-2 was shot down over Cuba and the pilot was killed. So the U.S. defense establishment realized it had a problem... ...which is that one of its main manned aerial reconnaissance systems... ...was vulnerable not only in military terms... ...but also prone to causing a diplomatic crisis... If you shoot down a U 2 and capture the pilot, the pilot is not only a symbol of your intrusion, but he's a bargaining chip. So it was in the early 60s that some officers inside the Pentagon brainstormed the idea of converting a target drone into a reconnaissance drone. Drones themselves were not new, radio controlled aircraft had been around and even seen frontline use since the early 20th century. And late in World War II, there were some very simple radio-controlled glide bombs, and the U.S. military even experimented with a remote-controlled B-17 bomber. So the idea of a remote-controlled aircraft wasn't all that new, but in the early 60s, they mostly, in U.S. military service, were relegated to target drone duties. You launch them, you shoot them down for practice. The U-2 crisis motivated the Pentagon to fit a camera to a one of its most popular target drones, the Model 147, and see if that drone couldn't at least partially replace the manned U-2 spy plane. Now, as history will tell us, the drone did not replace the U-2 spy plane. The U-2 is still in service today but history also tells us that the idea of a reconnaissance drone was a good one and could save pilots lives and that was evident as early as the vietnam war even if history kind of briefly forgot (laughs) that drones played an important part in that conflict
2: what other conflicts were they used in around that muddy muggled period of the cold war when tensions are high Are these also used over places like Cuba? Are they ever sent over any part of the Soviet Union? Are they used over Korea? Yes, no, and
1: yes. So the Model 147 actually had an opportunity to contribute to the U.S. reconnaissance effort over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So after a crash effort, the very first reconnaissance-equipped Model 147s were ready for service as early as 1962. And the U.S. Air Force loaded up some of its initial consignment of Model 147s onto their C-130 launch plane and were ready to fly them over Cuba. When some senior officers intervened and said, no, we don't want to waste these drones on (laughs) a conflict as small as Cuba, the Model 147 in 1962 was a closely held secret. Not only did America's enemies not know that the U.S. Air Force had an unmanned reconnaissance vehicle at its disposal, but many people in the U.S. military itself did not know that this thing was available, and senior planners didn't want to tip their hand and reveal the Model 147 over Cuba when they had the option of maintaining its secrecy in the event that war kicked off in Europe and... NATO needed these Model 147s to spy on the Soviets. The Model 147s were most active over Vietnam, but the Air Force did develop a special version, the Model 147-TE, for use over North Korea. The Israeli Air Force also bought a small number of the aircraft for use in its own dangerous neighborhood. So it wasn't strictly a Vietnam air vehicle, the Model 147 flew over numerous theaters in the 1960s and 70s. But with the end of the Vietnam Air War, the prime motivator for the drone campaign ended, and many of the people most responsible for making unmanned reconnaissance a thing in the Vietnam War retired. And the idea itself kind of got a bit discredited As the Pentagon shifted its attention back to deterring the Soviet Union in Europe, the Air Force crunched the numbers and concluded that it was cheaper and more effective to use manned aircraft for reconnaissance to say nothing of ground attack missions. The Model 147 required a lot of support and it was fairly expensive and not very reliable. So while it did keep pilots out of harm's way, it still required a substantial and expensive human enterprise to run it. And in the higher stakes of an air war over Central Europe, the Air Force seemed to prefer manned aircraft. So after Vietnam, the Model 147 just kind of went away. And it wasn't until the 1980s that the Pentagon began to invest in a big way in drones for frontline purposes again. And it wasn't until 2001, with the Predators debut over Afghanistan, that armed
2: drones became central to the American way of war. It is fascinating how there's this chopped up yet still linear and chronological history of how drones developed whether they were used as part of those B-17s and Liberator bombers that were retrofitted into drones during the Second World War and then re-scooped up in the 1960s, then dropped off again in the late 70s and picked up again through into the 80s as you got more like the pioneer systems that become the Predator. And like you say, the dawn of what you can say the first proper drone age when October 7th, 2001, you have that first drone strike after the attacks on 9-11 on Mullah Omar, in Afghanistan. There is a long history there of drone warfare but I am still fascinated by this Model 147. So I'm going to ask you a really nerdy technical question David. Tell us how do these things take off? How do they fly? You said that they were put in transporter planes. Are they dropped out of the back like a drone mothership or are they launched off rails off the ground like earlier drone systems? How do these things fly? When the Model 147
1: was well, before it was the Model 147 when it was just the Fire B target drone, it could be launched a number of ways. You could strap a small rocket booster to it and fling it into the air via a ramp, or you could hang it under the wing of a mothership aircraft. The Navy used maritime patrol planes and the Air Force used bombers and then later C-130 transports. With aerial launch, you obviated the need for a rocket booster because the mothership plane did the boosting on the drone's behalf, but it added complexity to launch a drone from the air. You needed to crew and to maintain the launch planes, and the launch planes themselves were a source of potential error in the overall system. The way it worked in the Vietnam War was pretty straightforward, albeit a complicated enterprise a c-130 a dc-130 technically would take off with two drones underneath its wings would fly to a release point outside of enemy air defense range the launch crew on board would trigger the drones one drone was normally a primary aircraft and then the second could be a backup aircraft or could have its own mission In any event, the launch crew on board the DC-130 would activate the drone, and it would drop off the DC-130's wing, its own engine would trigger, and then it would wing on its way at a subsonic speed at an altitude that varied. There were low-altitude models and high-altitude models, and it would follow a series of pre-programmed navigational checkpoints, diving and climbing and turning and activating its camera, according to this pre-planned route. The drone knew where it was because it had an inertial navigation system that basically kept time and kept track of how it was oriented in space in order to dead reckon its way along a uh, flight path that may have had a dozen or 15 or 20 checkpoints, at which point it could change altitude or turn. The drone ideally would follow its pre-programmed path expend its onboard film, and then would turn around, fly back to a recovery point where it would pop a parachute and float back down to Earth. For operations over Vietnam in the early years, from 1964 for several years after, the DC-130s and the entire drone enterprise operated from Okinawa. The recovery point was in Taiwan. And then once the drone had landed in Taiwan, assuming it didn't sink into a rice paddy or disappear into the ocean, which happened quite frequently, a helicopter would load it up, fly it to an airfield, and then the C-130 would fly it back to Okinawa for reconditioning and reuse. In the middle of the Vietnam War, the entire enterprise picked up and moved to South Vietnam, where the C-130s would take off. Fly toward North Vietnam, launch the drone, the drone would then fly back to South Vietnam for recovery. As the war was ending, the Enterprise picked up once again and moved to Thailand. And by 1975, the drone wing shut its doors and sent its surviving drones back to the United States. So that's the complicated answer to the simple question, how do these things launch? While they were target drones, they could launch from the ground or from the air. When they were frontline vehicles, they strictly launched in midair from a C-130 mother plane. I mean, it's a good answer,
2: David. I'm happy with that. But I, I, I need to know more. If you love ancient history, then don't worry. We've got you covered. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients podcast, the podcast for all things ancient history. And these are the only surviving boxing gloves from the Roman Empire. And they're the earliest surviving boxing gloves for over 1,600 years.
0: So, through this material, we're actually looking at this entangled sum of hundreds and thousands, in fact, of stories of life across ancient Eurasia. Bart of Cleopatra. I had never come across any such thing before.
2: Subscribe to the Ancients on History Hit. Wherever you get your podcasts,
0: quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort.
1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
2: So tell me, how many were launched during the Vietnam War? Are we talking tens? Are we talking hundreds? It sounds more like we're talking thousands. Is that the sort of scale of drones that we're considering here? Can we think of Vietnam as uh, its own drone war? Ryan Aeronautical produced more than 1,000 Model 147
1: Lightning Bug reconnaissance drones, which would technically make the Model 147 one of the most numerous single warplane types of the Vietnam War. However, a Model 147 had a very limited life expectancy. On average, a Lightning Bug drone completed three missions before it crashed or was shot down. So 1,000 aircraft... In total, completed only around 3,000 missions, which not only makes the Model 147 one of the most numerous airplane types of the Vietnam War, but also one of
2: the least survivable. Probably means it's another reason why they kind of dropped the idea for a, a couple of decades. An expensive way to try and gather intelligence. But was it successful? Because I'm thinking this is like a modern day drone where you've got a near real time video transmission back to generals in a control room via a satellite link up. But that surely isn't the case. Is this thing recording internally so that when it's picked up finally after that long logistical run the the film or the video cameras on it can be retrieved developed and then pieced together i mean what is the time cycle on gathering this intelligence is it not out of date by the time that it gets into the hands of the people that need it the model 147 was very good at what it did
1: it just wasn't very reliable so, yes, as opposed to modern drones, which stream live video and other sensor data to an operator on the ground via satellite, the Model 147 was self contained. It's not that satellites didn't exist, but GPS and extensive satellite communications that we take for granted today did not exist. So, once the drone launched, it was on its own until it got back to base. The drone depending on the model, had one or several film cameras on board. In fact, in the early models, it was the same camera that the U-2 spy plane had, the same main camera. These cameras and their lenses were optimized for either high or low altitude photography, depending on the model of drone in question. And they would shoot hundreds or thousands of still photographs of targets, assuming that the drone accurately navigated and actually arrived over its target, which was not a foregone conclusion. But in any event, the drone would snap photographs and then return back to base. Once the drone had recovered, the crews on the ground would remove the film canisters, and all of that came with great risk. If a drone recovered into the ocean or into a rice paddy, it could compromise the film canister and destroy the film. But assuming that the crews successfully recovered the film canister, they would have to then ship it off for processing and analysis, which was a problem with the drone enterprise. So the Model 147s were manufactured by Ryan Aeronautical, a San Diego drone manufacturer, but they also were operated largely by Ryan Aeronautical contractors. There were Air Force airmen in support, but for the most part the maintenance and launch and recovery of the Model 147s fell to civilian contractors. The Air Force did not read in these civilian contractors on the intelligence side of the drone enterprise. So when a Model 147 came home with a canister of film, the Ryan aeronautical contractors were not allowed to develop and analyze that film. That was the Air Force's job. And the Air Force did that work in the United States. So film canisters of presumably targets in North Vietnam would have to fly to the United States for processing, only after which the actual intelligence could filter down to the frontline forces. So it was a big problem, the lag between when a Model 147 completed its mission and when uh, bomber crews or frontline ground units, or whatever, would have access to this intelligence. And it was also a problem for Ryan Aeronautical's attempts to make the drone more reliable. So many of the drones were missing their target zones by just a few miles. And that meant either the drone had an internal error that was leading it slightly off course, or the launch planes were in the wrong location when they fired off their drones, and a miss of even a few miles would set the drones off on the wrong course, and that error would accumulate as the drones flew many hundreds of miles and then turned around and tried to come home. As Ryan Aeronautical analyzed the drone's navigation errors, it didn't have all of the data it needed on exactly where the drones were at particular points during their missions, in order to decide if it was the drones that were messing up or the launch planes so ryan had to argue with the air force to get more access to the data that the drones were gathering in order to make the drones work better
2: wow this sounds both laborious and convoluted and when we think of drones today and we complain about the fact that they have a near real-time lag of between three and four seconds back to the mainland United States, it kind of shows you how far drone technology has come with the help of satellite technology, of course. But tell us a little bit about the other missions that they were sent to fulfill in this conflict. So I remember you saying that they were involved in electronic warfare measures.
1: So one of the main drivers of drone development in the 1950s and 60s was the threat of surface-to-air missiles. In fact, it was one particular surface-to-air missile type that was the reason, really, for the entire Model 147 program, and that would be the SA-2, or if you're using the Soviet nomenclature, the S-75, which is a gigantic multi-stage radar proximity-fused ballistic missile that was the mainstay of Soviet Cuban, and North Vietnamese air defenses throughout the early Cold War. The SA-2 wasn't super accurate, but it was numerous, and it was extremely dangerous. It was SA-2s that usually shot down U-2s, whether those U-2s were American or Taiwanese. It was an SA-2 that shot down Gary Powers, the U-2 in 1960, and SA-2s shot down hundreds of american warplanes over vietnam the model 147 was developed to sort of take the teeth out of soviet-designed air defense systems by removing the pilot and therefore if an sa2 shot down your reconnaissance vehicle it mattered less but the Model 147 also played an active role in helping to develop countermeasures against the sa2 Uh, Not only was the Model 147 expendable in the Air Force's view, but also it was one of the means by which the Air Force tried to get close to the SA-2. So the SA-2 worked by a radar proximity fuse. So in other words, there was a tiny radar system in the nose of the surface-to-air missile that when it detected an enemy aircraft, it would trigger the warhead, the missile would explode... And if the design worked, shoot down the nearby plane. If you know the frequency of that fuse, you can jam the fuse or fool the fuse into thinking that the enemy airplane isn't there or is somewhere else. But in order to thwart an SA-2 fusing system, you need to know that frequency. And that was a closely held secret. So the Air Force fitted model 147s with sensitive electronic receivers that would detect the fuse signal and then beam that data to a nearby manned electronic intelligence plane and do so fast because the span of time between when an SA-2 emitted its fusing signal and when the SA-2 exploded (laughs) was a second. (laughs) roughly. So the drone had to detect that signal and then beam off that data, and the receiving plane had to receive it fast. So the Air Force built a very small number of Model 147D and Model 147E lightning bugs. These were not reconnaissance aircraft. Rather, they were electronic intelligence aircraft. Their purpose was to fly a suicide mission directly into enemy air defenses, in this case, North Vietnamese air defenses, draw fire from SA-2 batteries, capture that fusing signal, and beam it off. And that mission, the Air Force called it Long Arm, was wildly successful uh, in 1965. Some Pentagon officials described it as one of the most important and successful intelligence efforts of the entire war. With the fusing data in hand, the military was able to develop jammers and spoofers that it could fit to manned aircraft to thwart the SA-2 system. And it's kind of hard to calculate exactly how many manned aircraft and how many pilots the Model 147Ds and E's helped to save, but easily dozens scores. That is to say the SA-2 got a lot less effective after 1965 thanks to these suicide drones that captured that fusing signal in that one second and beamed that data off to a manned plane.
2: That is absolutely incredible, David. These are like flying science labs in the sky that are hoovering up this signal, this data almost, and then sending it off to save lives and to save planes to ensure the US can carry out its missions more safely. And it's almost reminiscent a little bit of the fact that drones are used today by many nations to hoover up metadata, to help with targeting as well. So maybe there's a little bit of a kind of genesis of the way in which drones are used today in there as well. Now, I've got one final question for you, David. Were these drones ever involved in their own dogfights? I can only assume they must have been pretty bloody useless in that sort of situation. But did they shoot down any of the enemy themselves? So there's another model of the
1: Lightning Bug, the Model 147N, It wasn't a reconnaissance aircraft, and it wasn't an electronic intelligence aircraft. It was a decoy. Its entire job was to distract North Vietnamese air defenses from other drones or manned aircraft to, in essence, draw enemy fire without even gathering any intelligence on the enemy air defenses, just to draw the fire and get shot down. These Model 147s, the decoys, the N models, were accidentally fairly successful dogfighters. So they didn't actually engage in dogfights with North Vietnamese MiGs. They weren't even armed, but they did attract a lot of attention. They had a lot of North Vietnamese MiGs chasing after them. And because the Model 147s had long range and the MiGs didn't, on at least five occasions, North Vietnamese MiGs chased after the Model 147s and the pilots, I guess distracted by the chase, didn't notice that they ran out of fuel and the MiGs crashed trying to shoot down these decoy Model 147Ns. So the lightning bug, depending on how you count it, has at least five MiG kills to its name. During other Model 147 missions, a North Vietnamese service-to-air missile shot down a North Vietnamese MiG in another uh, Model 147N mission. A North Vietnamese MiG accidentally shot down a fellow North Vietnamese MiG. So the Model 147s forced five MiGs to crash and then kind of lured two other MiGs into getting shot down by friendly forces. So if you look at it another way, the Model 147 has seven kills to its name. None of them on purpose, but...
2: I mean, a kill's a kill. And if, you know, they're operating in that decoy role, then it's kind of part of the purpose, isn't it? David, thank you so much for filling this gap in the history of drone warfare and also in the history of the war in Vietnam. It's truly fascinating. Tell us, where can people read more? Well, buy the book, wherever you buy books. The book is Drone War Vietnam from Pen and Sword wonderful drone war vietnam now that is a title for a book david thank you so much for coming on the warfare podcast you're always welcome it's my pleasure
0: here's a cool fact